Welcome to American Dissident Voices. I'm Kevin Alfred Strom. Every February 13 and 14, we remember the Holocaust of Dresden. Yesterday, I received a letter from a listener, J.B., in Great Britain, who has written a poem about that day of horror and terror, and I want to share that poem with you now. It's entitled, Lest We Recall, Dresden, 1945. On the 13th of February, 45, we roasted the women and children alive. Yet all the crazed chanting of gas chamber lies can't hide the grim truth born on terror-filled skies. God Moloch, now drunk on this surfeit of blood, took the world as his tribute and saw it was good. It is good that the victims are hated and shamed, that ever hereafter the truth is defamed. By fables of lampshades and soap and of shoes, of diamond-regurgitating escapologist Jews. It is good, said Lord Moloch, that lies must prevail, and all those that doubt it be thrown into jail. It is good, quoth he, of the insatiable maw, that the world is convulsed by perpetual war. One may either be complicit in Molochian insanity, or learn truth from real history and stand up for humanity. One of my earliest American Dissident Voices broadcasts, written and aired in 1993, was about the atrocity of Dresden. The text of that broadcast has been translated into German and has been reprinted and distributed many times over the years, but the broadcast itself is seldom heard. Today, 23 years later, I present this classic broadcast once again to my American Dissident Voices audience to remember and honor the victims of a real Holocaust. The night of February 13th and February 14th, Valentine's Day, mark an ominous anniversary in the history of Western civilization. For beginning on the night of February 13th, 1945, occurred the destruction of Dresden. On the eve of Valentine's Day, 1945, World War II in Europe was nearly over. For all practical purposes, Germany was already defeated. Italy and Germany's other European allies had fallen by the wayside. The Red Army was rushing to occupy vast areas of what had been Germany in the east, while the allies of the Soviets, the British and the Americans, were bombing what was left of Germany's defenses and food and transportation infrastructure into non-existence. And just what was Dresden? Most of you have probably heard of Dresden, China, and that delicately executed and meticulously detailed porcelain is really a perfect symbol for that city. For centuries, Dresden had been a center of art and culture 
and refined leisure and recreation. She was a city of art museums and theaters, circuses and sports stadia, a town of ancient half-timbered buildings looking for all the world like those of medieval England, with venerable churches and centuries-old cathedrals gracing her skyline. She was a city of artists and craftsmen, of actors and dancers, of tourists and the merchants and hotels that serve them. Above all, what Dresden was was defined during the war by what she was not. She had no significant military or industrial installations. Because of this, Dresden had become, above all other things that she was, a city of children, of women, of refugees, and of the injured and maimed who were recovering from their wounds in her many hospitals. These women and children, these wounded soldiers, these infirm and elderly people, these refugees fleeing from the brutal onslaught of the communist armies to the east, had come to Dresden because it was commonly believed at the time that Dresden would not be attacked. Its lack of strategic or military or industrial significance and the well-known presence of hundreds of thousands of innocent civilian refugees and even allied prisoners of war seemed to guarantee safety to the city. Surely, it was thought, not even the most powerful and determined enemy would be so depraved and sadistic and so wasteful of that enemy's own resources to attack such a city. But the people of Dresden who were happily attending the cinema, or eating dinner at home, or watching the show horses in the circus on that fateful night, were wrong, wrong, wrong. And their leaders were also wrong, for the city was virtually open and undefended, and only minimal civil defense preparations had been made. Dresden's population had almost doubled in the months before the attack, mainly as a result of the influx of refugees from the Eastern Front, most of them women and young children. According to British historian David Irving, the briefings given to the British bomber squadrons before the attack on Dresden were curiously different. In one, the soldiers were told that their target was the railway center of Dresden. In another, they were told that the target was a poison gas factory. In yet another briefing, they were told that the target was a marshalling grounds for troops in the city. Another was told that the target was a major arsenal. These were all lies. The only marshalling grounds for what few troops were in the area were located well outside the city. The arsenal had burned down in 1916. There were factories for toothpaste and baby powder in Dresden, but none for poison gas. There were, in fact, no fewer than 18 railway stations in Dresden, but only one was hit by the bombing, and that was barely touched, and in fact was operating again just three days later. According to copious documentation unearthed by David Irving from the archives of the American and British governments, the point of the attack was, in fact, to inflict the maximum loss of life 
on the civilian population and particularly to kill as many refugees as possible who were fleeing from the Red Army. In achieving these goals, the attack was highly successful. It was thus planned and executed by those at the very highest levels of the British and American governments, who, to attain their purposes, even lied to their own soldiers and citizens, who to this day have never been told the full story by their leaders. How was this devastating effect accomplished? At 10.10 p.m. on February 13th, the first wave of the attack, consisting of the British No. 5 bomber group, began. The attacking force consisted of about 2,000 bombers with additional support craft, which dropped over 3,000 tons on the center of the city, including some 650,000 incendiary bombs, more commonly known as fire bombs. These type bombs are not known for their efficiency per pound in destroying heavy equipment, such as military hardware or railroad tracks, but are extremely effective in producing maximum loss of human life. The loads carried by the bombers were 75% incendiaries. In fact, the goal of the first wave of the attack was, according to British Air Commander Sir Arthur Bomber Harris, to set the city, quote, well on fire, close quote. That he did. The lack of any effective anti-aircraft defenses allowed the bombers to drop to very low altitudes and thus a relatively high degree of precision and visual identification of targets was achieved. Despite the fact that they could clearly see that the marked target area contained hospitals and sports stadia and residential areas of Center City Dresden, the bombers nevertheless obeyed orders and rained down a fiery death upon the unlucky inhabitants of that city on a scale which had never before been seen on planet Earth. Hundreds of thousands of innocents were literally consumed by fire, an actual holocaust by the true definition of the word, complete consumption by fire. The incendiary started thousands of fires, and aided by a stiff wind and the early-on destruction of the telephone exchanges that might have summoned firefighters from nearby towns, these fires soon coalesced into one unimaginably huge firestorm. Now such firestorms are not natural phenomena and are seldom created by man, so few people have any idea of their nature. Basically what happened was this. The intense heat caused by the huge column of smoke and flame, miles high and thousands of acres in area, created a terrific updraft of air in the center of the column. This created a very low pressure at the base of the column and surrounding fresh air rushed inward at speeds estimated to be 30 times that of an ordinary tornado. An ordinary tornado wind force is a result of temperature differences of perhaps 20 to 30 degrees centigrade at most. In this firestorm the temperature differences were on the order of 600 to 1000 degrees centigrade. 
This inward rushing air further fed the flames, creating a literal tornado of fire. With winds in the surrounding area of many hundreds of miles an hour, sweeping men, women, children, animals, vehicles, and uprooted trees pell-mell into the glowing inferno. But this was only the first stage of the plan. Exactly on schedule, three hours after the first attack, a second massive armada of British bombers arrived, again loaded with high explosives and massive quantities of incendiary bombs. The residents of Dresden, their power systems destroyed by the first raid, had no warning of the second. Again, the British bombers attacked the center city of Dresden, this time dividing their targets. One half of the bombs were to be dropped into the center of the conflagration to keep it going, the other half around the edges of the firestorm. No pretense whatever was made of selecting military targets. The timing of the second armada was such as to ensure that a large quantity of the surviving civilians would have emerged from their shelters by that time, which was the case, and also in hopes that rescue and firefighting crews would have arrived from surrounding cities by that time, which also proved to be true. The firefighters and medics thus incinerated hadn't required the telephone exchange to know that they were needed. The firestorm was visible from a distance of 200 miles. It is reported that body parts, pieces of clothing, tree branches, huge quantities of ashes, and miscellaneous debris from the firestorm fell for days on the surrounding countryside as far away as 18 miles. After the attack finally subsided, rescue workers found nothing but liquefied remains of the inhabitants of some shelters, where even the metal kitchen utensils had melted from the intense heat. The next day, Ash Wednesday and Valentine's Day, 1945, medical and other emergency personnel from all over central Germany had converged on Dresden. Little did they suspect that yet a third wave of bombers was on its way, this time Americans. This attack had been carefully coordinated with the previous raids. 450 flying fortresses and a support contingent of fighters arrived to finish the job at noon. I quote from David Irving's The Destruction of Dresden. Quote, Just a few hours before, Dresden had been a fairy tale city of spires and cobbled streets. Now total war had put an end to all that. The ferocity of the U.S. raid of 14th February had finally brought the people to their knees. But it was not the bombs which finally demoralized the people. It was the Mustang fighters which suddenly appeared low over the city firing on everything that moved. One section of the Mustangs concentrated on the riverbanks, where masses of bombed-out people had gathered. British prisoners, who had been released from their burning camps, were among the first to suffer the discomfort of machine-gunning attacks. Wherever columns of tramping people were marching in or out of the city, 
they were pounced on by the fighters and machine-gunned or raked with cannon fire. Close quote. Ladies and gentlemen, on this program I can only give you a bare glimpse of the inhuman horror of the destruction of Dresden. In Dresden, no fewer than 135,000 mostly innocent victims died, with some estimates as high as 300,000. More died in Dresden than died in the well-known attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. More destruction befell Dresden in one day than was inflicted on the whole of Britain during the entire war. And yet, you haven't been told. I urge every one of you to read The Destruction of Dresden by David Irving. I assure you, after reading Irving's book, you will never take seriously the establishment's version of what happened in that war again. You've been listening to American Dissident Voices, the radio program of the National Alliance. Volume 2 of our CD series containing 20 more of the best radio speeches by our founder, Dr. William L. Pierce, is now available. It's entitled, William Pierce, The Power of Truth, Volume 2. To get your copy, just visit natall.com. That's N-A-T-A-L-L dot com and press CD offer. Or send $16 for one CD, $50 for five CDs to National Alliance, Box 172, Laurel Bloomery, Tennessee, 37680, USA. That's National Alliance, Box 172, Laurel Bloomery, Tennessee, 37680 USA or visit natall.com, N A T A L L.com, and click on CD offer. Until next week, this is Kevin Alfred Strom reminding you of the words of Richard Berkeley Cotton Freedom is not free, free men are not equal, and equal men are not free.
For blood and for soil we will work, we will toil. Heaven is born on the earth. The heroes arise as we shout to the skies. We will now have our rebirth. For blood and for soil. Shout.